Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 24. Happy Together. In a New Yorker article, later adapted for his book David and Goliath, the writer Malcolm Gladwell tells the story of the Redwood City girls basketball team. The team was made up of 12-year-olds with varying levels of skill and interest in the sport. They lost a lot. One of the dads became involved with coaching and made a few changes. He found ways that the team could win lots of games, but everyone had to buy into it and be prepared to work extra hard for it and it worked. What did he do? First, he asked the team to press as far up the court as possible on defense. Don't give away unnecessary territory by falling back to your own half after a score. Second, make it really hard for opponents to throw the ball in from out of bounds. You have five seconds to do this, but if everyone is being marked, you panic and make a mistake. So Redwood City made people panic by taking away their options. Third, once the ball was in play, opponents had 10 seconds to get it across the halfway line, so Redwood City de dedicated players to stopping opponents from escaping their own half. Time and again, these simple tactics gave Redwood City possession of the ball in close range, meaning they could take shots that they had the best chance of making. The way Redwood City played basketball made a lot of people mad, and it didn't last. They did make the playoffs that year, though. Welcome to the first Ski Shoot Repeat of 2024 and a Happy New Year to you. There's a lot to get through in this episode. We have reviews of the action from Lenzer Heide before Christmas and my live notes of the World Team, team Challenge in Gelsenkirchen. We'll have a quick look ahead to this weekend's racing in Oberhof and we have our deep dive this week into the wonderful world of teamwork. Let's start by looking back to Lenzer Heide. The World Cup took a trip to Switzerland before Christmas in the small town of Lenzerheide. This gave us some interesting challenges. The tracks are at significant altitude, which has effects on performance, and were also quite tricky, with long uphill sections, but then a nice descent into the range to get your breath back. One of the lovely aspects of Lenzerheide was that spectators were free to stand around the circuit, so the biathletes had support all the way around, and we got a lot more of a sense of excitement and energy. As to the racing, we had sprints, pursuits, and our first mass starts of the season. The women's racing was all about one person, Justine Brézard-Boucher of France. Previous listeners won't have heard her name last year as she was on maternity leave, but she's back this season and has been getting better week by week. This was undoubtedly the perfect weekend for her. The sprint race gave us some excellent shooting, with seven of the top 10 all shooting the perfect 10 out of 10. That meant it came down to speed, and we know that Justine Brézard-Boucher has been fast all year. What we didn't expect was for her to take 12 seconds out of Ingrid Landmark Tandrevold and 17 out of Lisa Vitozzi. Those three made up the podium, followed by Julia Simon and Elvira Erberg, both shooting 9 out of 10, but showing just how fast they can be. There were great results for Marit Skogen of Norway in 6th and Deirdre Irwin of the USA in 8th. The women's pursuit was dramatic, 
but also a display of measured control by Brezard Boucher. She had some really aggressive chasers, particularly Elvira Erberg and Julia Simon. Some great shooting from lower-ranked skiers moved them up the ranks, a particular mention to Vanessa Voigt, who came seventh with a perfect 20 out of 20. At the front, Brezard Boucher was measuring her effort on the tracks, and not perfect in the range, shooting 17 of 20, but others faltered too. By the third shoot, it was close between Justine and Julia Simon. Justine missed one, but Julia missed two. In the fourth shoot, the opposite happened. Justine missed one, but Julia shot clear, and there was only a seven-second gap between them leaving the range. But it was Justine who had saved her energies early on, and was able to extend her lead to take the win, ahead of Julia Simon, and a first podium from Marit Skogan, who looked absolutely delighted. On to the women's mass start, the first of the season. The top 30 athletes in the rankings get to ski head-to-head -head with four shoots over 12.5 kilometres, and it's a great spectacle. Often you find that people who have worked hard in the earlier races start to make mistakes in the mass start, but not Justine Brazard-Boucher. She needed a perfect shoot to hold off the Oberg sisters, and she got it. Honestly, her standing shoot was so solid and secure, as if there was never any doubt in her mind that she would hit all of the targets. Elvira was able to hold off Hannah Erberg to take second, and there was another clear shoot and fourth place for Lisa Vitozzi. She's a model of consistency so far this season. Oh, and Francisca Preuss shot 20 out of 20 again. She's shooting 95% in both prone and stand so far this year, which is a ridiculous achievement. On the men's side of things, the sprint was great entertainment, with the German team bouncing back into form following their difficulties in Hochfilzen. They are physically strong skiers, and may well have more experience at altitude, which meant that they ended up with four in the top ten. There was a bit of a French resurgence too, with Quentin Fillon-Maillet in eighth, and Eric Perrault in tenth, both with good ski speed. A special mention to Lovro Planko of Slovenia, who shot clear and came ninth. But it came down to this. Benedict Doll of Germany shooting clear, versus Johannes Tingisbo missing one. Last year's Johannes would have stormed it and made up the time but perhaps the altitude and the ski setup, and that slight sense of not being quite up to full speed yet, all played a part, along with the speed and belligerence of Benedict Doll. And it was Doll who secured the win, five seconds ahead of Johannes Bohm, with Philip Naurath in third. On to the pursuit, Johannes came to ski, and had pulled out a good early lead after the prone shoots. He made it exciting for us by missing two in the first standing shoot. That brought the accurate Stirrerholm Ligrid back onto his shoulder, with André Stromsheim and Vettel Christensen in pursuit. On the final shoot, Johannes did what he does. Five out of five and away he went. Ligrid hit four out of five. Stromsheim had a nightmare, dropping the magazine off the edge of the mat and down into the snow. He took off his skis so he could crouch down and pick it up, then had to regroup. He managed four out of five and lost a lot of time. But what he lost in seconds he gained in adrenaline and he charged around the last lap to take second place. In my notes taken at the time, I've written, Stromsheim is pushing for it, no regret strategy, you only live once. And his was honestly one of the most exciting performances of the weekend. The men's mass start was a demonstration of Norwegian dominance and gave us another bodium. Johannes shot 18 out of 20, but was fast enough to win, ahead of Johannes Dalis Gerdal and Taye Bo, both shooting 19. Norway took five of the top 10 places. I guess there's variety in seeing which Norwegian will do well each time, but it can sometimes feel like a bit of a parade. Let's hope the other nations can find their form again as we head to the new year.
The Cambridge Dictionary defines teamwork as the activity of working together in a group with other people, especially when this is successful. But what are the characteristics of teamwork that make it more likely that you'll achieve success? Literature about teamwork in business and in sport picks out some key characteristics. Firstly, trust. Biathlon relays don't carry the same level of stress as, say, a 4 by 100 meter athletics relay. There, trust is crucial, particularly in line with technique. As the runner receiving the baton, you have to trust that it's going to be placed in your hand as you start to build up speed. You can't hesitate, falter, or look back. All you can do is trust. In biathlon, the athlete has to trust the, their coaches to give them advice when they are zeroing, so they know they'll be accurate on the range. And they have to trust that the equipment they're using is properly prepared and ready to work. Losing trust in any of that causes a mental distraction. I think it was Ingrid Landmark Tandrevold who had rifle issues while zeroing in Lenzerheide, and it must have been in the back of her mind as she came in for every shoot. Last year, in Annecy, we saw Johannes Tingisbo lose trust in his skis. They just weren't set up to suit the very icy conditions and he looked like a novice on skis rather than the world's best. You could see what happened. Tension, extra effort, and you know that his heart and mind would have been racing to think about what to do, how to compensate for things not working as they should. I'll come back to this thought in a moment. Alongside trust, good teamwork needs a clear strategy. Like the Redwood City basketball team we talked about earlier, you have to know what you're collectively working towards. Is it a win? Is it a season's best performance? Is it a clean day on the range? In the relays, you need the strategy for the order in which the athletes are going to race and to build that based on your best guess of what other nations will be doing. It might often feel like the big nations are always going to win relays, simply because of their strength in numbers. And that's often the case in the men's discipline. The women's relays can present something different though. Italy's women had a great and quite unexpected victory at last year's World Championships. For team managers, coaches and physios, it's about the longer term too. How do we manage energy and resources through a season to get the best results? Which athletes are competing for the World Cup and which are trained to peak at the World Championships each February? Vettel Christiansen of Norway is taking a break right now and won't be competing at Oberhof this week. A decision which made some people raise their eyebrows given how competitive he is, but maybe a chance to rest him and to test new talent in the run-up to the World Championships in Novemiesto. Strategy also tells you about roles within a team. What is the job of each individual? How do these connect together into a single, cohesive unit? How do people communicate? Again, relays are a great example here. What are the roles and expectations of each leg of a relay team? It's also very unusual for someone to do what Justine Brezard-Boucher did and win all the races in a weekend. So you have to strategize across a team to give each athlete the best chance of getting their best results. Another element of being a team player is self-sacrifice or selflessness. Maybe here the best examples are two of the young French biathletes, Lou Jean Minot and Eric Perrault. Both really emerged onto the World Cup scene in the 2022-23 season by playing active parts in relay teams. And both have been phenomenal. They've tended to take the first leg in relays and have generally shot brilliantly and been towards the front when it comes to the handover. Perhaps it's something about competing with and for others that really draws out championship level performances from them. That then has given them the confidence to get really competitive in the individual races too. Something else is flexibility. You never know what's going to happen in life and in sport. 
If you're too wedded to a strategy and a set of roles, then you're vulnerable to outside change. If you follow American football, you'll know that there have been a string of quarterback injuries this season. Across 32 teams, more than 60 quarterbacks have now played. The moral here is that you're only as good as your second or even third string player. You need flexibility in biathlon for things like changes in weather and snow conditions, which might mean adjusting your setup at the last minute, or managing a response to delays and rescheduled timetables. As a team, you also need to be able to look ahead, to anticipate what's most likely to come, and to prepare for it. It felt like the French men's team did a great job of looking ahead to the point that Martin Foucard retired, bringing forward new talent like Emilien Jacqueline and the Claude brothers, and really supporting Quentin Fillon-Maillet to his best season of racing. Now it maybe feels like they don't know what to look forward to. Yes, they're still competitive in relays, but what's the goal for them as a squad? How do you rebuild a team after it's fallen on tough times? Perhaps the German team can provide some answers after their resurgence in form with a range of new and veteran talent. Good teams also make space for mistakes. I said I'd come back to what happens when things go wrong in a team, particularly in the heat of the moment or after a race. Self-sacrifice is one aspect of it, giving everything you've got in the name of supporting your teammates. Forgiveness is probably the other side of that coin. Recognising that it won't always go perfectly, that the pressure of the moment might lead to a nightmare on the range, or that someone might have too much fatigue to win out in a sprint finish. The best teams are compassionate and supportive, with teammates competing alongside each other, not against each other. It's easy to think of a biathlon team and to list out the names of the biathletes, perhaps their coach, perhaps their specialist shooting coach. But there is way more to a biathlon team than that. There are the technicians preparing skis and rifles. There are the people who coordinate, prepare and clean ski suits, boots, gloves, hats and goggles. There are the people who drive the trucks from race to race, the nutritionists who work on meal plans, the logistics people who book hotels and make sure everyone is where they're supposed to be. There are physios and coaches helping to prepare biathletes physically and psychologically for each race meet and to manage performance during a weekend which could include five races. Every biathlete needs to be able to bounce back from a bad performance or keep it real after a good one and to have the physical and mental resources and techniques available to them to do this. Back at home there are the fundraisers and marketeers building relationships with national and individual sponsors. There are the federations helping ensure the grassroots sport and finding the next generation of talent. There are families watching their relatives compete on TV after years of driving them to and from competitions, volunteering, cooking, cleaning and their own self-sacrifices to bring up high-level athletes. You only have to hear Michaela Schifrin talking about her relationship with her parents, particularly her late father who was also her coach, to understand how much family and team can connect together in an athlete's life. When you think of how many people are involved, it's no surprise that you have a kind of aristocracy of larger nations who are able to fund and staff a large biathlon squad, and smaller nations who simply can't dedicate the same resources. If you've heard interviews with the biathlete Campbell Wright, you know that his path has taken him from training alone in New Zealand, his home, to training with the so-called refugee team in Europe, to taking the decision to switch nationalities to join the US team this past off-season. It feels like the IBU is keen to expand into different nations. The last World Championships was testament to this, with competitors not just from the European and North American stalwarts, but from Australia, New Zealand, Greece, Turkey, as well as China, Japan and South Korea. I've talked in a previous episode about small nations, 
and how a small country like Slovenia can have a disproportionate impact on world sports. Check out episode 6 from last season, entitled Size Doesn't Matter. Teamwork can also present challenges that go beyond different levels of resourcing. There have been widespread reports of a rift between two leading athletes within the French women's team, reports that haven't yet been fully resolved, but which seem to have been compartmentalised as both women achieve good, even great things on the snow this year. In both biathlon and cross-country, the top Norwegian men Johannes Tingisbo and Johannes Klebo have both opted to train separately from the main squad during the off-season. For Klebo, it's because he wanted to train at altitude in Italy with his trainer, who is also his grandfather, and other family members around him. In alpine skiing, World Cup slalom champion Lucas Braten retired from the sport aged just 23, with suggestions that there were cultural disagreements between him and the team at the Norwegian Federation, or at the very least that things weren't running as smoothly as they could. In episode 21 at the start of this season, I talked about the language of sport and the metaphors that we use. It's interesting to think about how sporting language moves into other realms when it comes to teamwork. In a business environment, you might talk about sending your heavy hitters to a meeting or keeping your eye on the ball. We expect people to take one for the team at work. There's some interesting pushback from the world of business, however. Sports always has winners and losers. Sports generally abide by a fixed set of rules and they happen with a pretty fixed framework of leagues, federations and competitions. Individual participants may change and rules get tweaked. Maybe there are innovations in equipment or adjustments to make things more even, but generally sports are pretty stable. Business, so the writers say, is not like that. You have new players all the time, often playing to different rules entirely. Think about a bricks and mortar shop compared with an online only retailer. Innovations come thick and fast, products become obsolete, methods change. In addition, sports metaphors can be seen as male-centric and focused on winning and losing rather than broader lessons about collaboration. Now perhaps the business journalists are making it sound like the corporate world changes way faster than it does. After all, many jobs look and feel very similar to how they did 20 years ago, albeit with a bit more technology. But there is a notion that businesses need to operate more flexibly than they used to, and that sports as a metaphor doesn't account for this. I'm not sure I agree. Sports coaching and management is always flexing and reacting to events in the moment, but it's an interesting set of perspectives to think about. My other reason for talking about teamwork this time is that the festive period saw the World Team Challenge from Gelsenkirchen. This event is outside the World Cup, standalone and unlike anything else on the calendar. The centrepiece of the event is the Schalke Football Stadium, an indoor arena that gets filled with maybe 10,000 fans. The biathlon tracks snake out of the arena and then back in for the shooting. This means that you get huge indoor crowds, a pumped up atmosphere, a lot of beer, showbiz walk-on music for team introductions, and a real intensity to the racing. The programme comprised a shooting competition which wasn't shown on TV but was won by Julia Simon of France, and then single mixed relays in both mass start and pursuit formats. The overall prize went to the team which comes out at the front at the end of the pursuit. So a bad performance in the mass start didn't necessarily rule anyone out of overall victory. In the mass start, we saw teams from Belgium, Ukraine, Slovenia, Switzerland, Czechia, Austria, Norway, France, and two teams from host nation Germany. We had some big names competing. Tandra Volden-Ligrid for Norway, 
Julia Simon and Fabienne Claude for France, Stalder and Berserger for Switzerland, and two German partnerships, Hannah Kebinger with Benny Doll and Janina Hetty-Faltz with Roman Rees. Note that the Swedish and Italian teams aren't here. I think that's a deliberate conservation of energy and resources to remain competitive in the World Cup competitions in the new year. The mass start relay was led off by the women, with Julia Simon of France setting out hard on the narrow tracks in the arena, followed by the two German teams, Norway and Switzerland. The lap takes around three minutes, and it was Julia who went about her business, back in the range, five out of five and shooting fast, while Tandrevold, Hetikvalts and Berserga shot their five out of five more patiently. Julia handed over to Fabienne Claude with a nine second lead, almost all of which came from the shooting range. It's worth remembering that this combination, Simon and Claude, won this event last year and are a practiced single mixed relay team in the World Cup too. Fabian Claude held on to the lead ahead of Rhys Ligrid Fack from Slovenia and Stalder of Switzerland. There was a great five out of five for Fabian in his first shoot and the same for Fack and Stalder. Benny Dole was also moving up the field. Handing back to the women, the French lead was, nine, was 18 seconds after just two laps with Slovenia, Switzerland and the kebinger Dole partnership for Germany in fourth. The race happens very quickly. These are my live notes. Even as I finished typing them, Julia Simon was back in the arena and she blasted five out of five in her standing shoot in about 15 seconds. The arena just burst out in applause and awe. Behind her, Kebinger was shooting five out of five to take second place at the exchange. The French lead had gone up to 25 seconds now, ahead of Germany, with a further 15 seconds to Switzerland and Slovenia. As the TV commentators were saying, the French team strategy is just to let rip. That's three shoots down and no misses for France. Fabien Claude is on the course again and the crowd is singing along to Hey Baby, but he can only shoot three out of five in his first standing shoot and is onto the penalty loop. Benny Doll is in, a bit wobbly, but hits his five out of five and the, back, the gap is back down to 10 seconds. Stolder and Fack shoot four out of five and Podrychny of Ukraine is moving up to third with a clear shoot. Into the second half of the race, with Julia Simon leading back into the range for the fifth of eight shoots. She shoots four of five, her first miss of the day, and Kebinger, Kebinger makes her five out of five, a bit more slowly but to the delight of the crowd. She's now just two seconds behind France. Out once again with Fabienne Claude. The recovery time here is so short, it's like interval training, which doesn't necessarily suit endurance athletes with their slower twitch fibres. This is fast twitch territory, so it's interesting to see who can cope with it and who finds it too disruptive to their rhythm. Fabienne Claude and Benedict Dole come onto the mat together for their last prone shoot, and Fabienne puts the pressure on, shooting clear and fast. Dole misses his final shoot and has to go on the penalty loop again. The lead is back up to 15 seconds, and Slovenia, shooting clear, have moved into sole possession of third. Julia is out on her last lap now. I'm thinking back to earlier in this episode when I talked about making space for mistakes. That's exactly what the French strategy gave them. Go hard and fast, shoot clean, easier said than done, and build up enough of a buffer to leave you still at the front even after a few misses. Then you get your competitive mojo back on, which both Julia and Fabian have in spades, and try to hold it together and shoot clean to the end of the race. Here comes Julia for her final standing shoot. She gets a great reception. I think there's a real respect for what she achieved last year and for what she's demonstrated in this event. Even the commentators were breathless after her shoot. Another five out of five in 17 seconds. 
handing over to Fabian for the final time. Kebinger stayed focused and shot five out of five. Behind her, Slovenia struggled, and Tandrevold of Norway hit a very steady five out of five and looked like coming out in third. And here comes Fabian into the arena for his final shoot, with Benny Doll trying to reduce the margin on the tracks. Fabian has the luxury of time here, but there's still pressure. He decided not to bother about taking his time. It's four out of five, but it's fast, and he'll be back out in the lead for the final lap to the finish. Doll goes more slowly in the range, but misses two, just as Ligrid comes into the range for the last time. Four out of five for Ligrid in third. At the finish line, it's France with a massive 50-second lead from the German duo Kebinger and Doll, then Norway just 10 seconds behind them in third. The time differences from the mass start are then halved and applied as the starting times for the pursuit, with an additional tweak here that no one has a time gap more than 45 seconds back from the leader. And so we go again. The first team across the line in the pursuit wins the big prize. Again, it's the women leading off. Julia Simon goes 25 seconds ahead of Kevinger, an absolute luxury. Tandravold and the others head off in fairly rapid succession. The question is whether France can hold it together when there's no one breathing down their necks. And really, beyond that, who's going to take the podium places? Watching Julia Simon in this is so businesslike. She is pacing everything exactly the same. Her shooting is solid. There's no change of routine or rhythm just absolutely secure each time. She gets her five out of five, and behind her we get another reshuffle. Kevin just stays second, but Slovenia and Ukraine move up, Norway drop back. Norway will pick up time on the tracks through the race, but it means more effort and more chasing. A lot of risk when there's such a short lap. Fabien Claude is on the tracks, then back in for a steady five out of five, which gets, gets an approving nod from Julia as she waits for the handover. Dole gets his first four, beautifully, but rushes the last one and misses. It's Ligrid who capitalises, hitting five out of five, bringing Norway back into contention for a podium spot. France have a 48 second lead after just two out of nine laps, and this could be over before it's even begun. The women are out again. Tandrevold is on Kebinger's heels for second place. Tandrevold is second in the World Cup rankings right now, so should find this pace relatively straightforward, but it can be hard to overtake on these narrow tracks and they reach the steepest part, and Kebinger slips and falls, which stalls Tandrevold. They regroup and carry on, but Julia Simon is already in the arena shooting yet another five out of five in the standing position. Kebinger and Tandrevold come in together, and there's going to be some adrenaline flowing. Tandrevold is patient and gets her five. Kebinger looks good, but just misses her last shot. It's Fabian who introduces some drama again, with a three out of five in his first standing shoot. He came in with a minute's lead, but there's maybe a chance for some hope for the others. That said, he has completed two penalty loops and handed over to Simon just as second place Ligrid takes his position to shoot. He manages five out of five to solidify their second place, and it, it's tense behind them, with the evergreen Jakob Fack hitting five out of five for Slovenia to move into third. Austria and the two German teams will be chasing him. The women take their next lap, France still have a good lead and can dial it back a couple of percentage points on the track, not that Julia is wired to do this. She sends five shots low left and hits them all. There are camera shots of the French coaching staff just beaming with delight right now. Tandrevold is in to shoot, and the noise ramps up as the chasing pack comes into the stadium. It doesn't put her off. She's shooting very safely and cleanly, but she's not making up any time. 
We now have two German teams, Austria and Slovenia, all shooting at the same time. And it's Kebinger for Germany and Klemencic for Slovenia, who shoot clean and go racing for third. Fabian does his job in the prone shoot. It's back to Julia. We have two standing shoots remaining. They have more than a minute to play with, and it's safe to say this has been an absolute demolition of everyone by the French. Ligrid goes clear to cement Norway in second. Dole shoots four fast. Fack shoots five slowly. And Roman Rees and Florent Claude of Belgium go clear. I haven't mentioned Belgium because all of the coverage of them has just been a nightmare. Mechanical issues, some missed shots, steady but not stellar skiing. But it's about how you finish a race sometime. And the combination of Florent Claude and Lotte Lee may have a chance of a podium. Just seven seconds off third with the two German teams also in that gap. Julia Simon is in for the final time. There's one shot that's a bit borderline, but it's yet another rapid 5 out of 5 in. She, she is the absolute star of the evening. Handing over to Fabian Claude for his final shoot and the, the laps to the finish, and that should be it. Behind France, Tandrevold sticks with her programme, taking her time, but she misses two as the oxygen dis disappears. There are two penalty loops for Norway, and four teams now in the range together. And it's Hetchik Schwaltz who blasts the targets down coming out just behind Tandrevold, with Klemencic and Lee still in contention. A race has broken out for second and third. This could be fun. Over to the men to take us to the end. Fabian has the arena to himself with a minute and a half lead. He rattles through the first four at top speed, hesitates before the fifth and it goes wide. There are big smiles all round. They've all been there, but it'll have a huge advantage going out onto the final sprint lap. Behind him, here comes the podium contenders. Ligrid comes in looking great, 5 out of 5, with not a flicker. Behind him, Roman Rees of Germany and Jakob Fack of Slovenia, both 5 out of 5 in a ski race. As the finish line approaches, Claude can stroll in, waving at the crowd, and even stopping to do a pretend sprint start before coming for a big smiley hug with his teammate. Ligrid is clear for second, and we have Fack and Rees still together. Will Fack be able to find a way past? There's really no space, but he has been here several times, so he would know where to go. The crowd turns up the volume, Reese stumbles are coming out of the final corner, Fack times it right and we have a great sprint down the final straight and it's Fack who has the strength and pulls away. A great third place for Slovenia. Looking ahead, the World Cup returns later this week in Oberhof, Germany with sprints, pursuits and relays. On Thursday the 4th of January, on Thursday 4th of January at 1.20 UK time we have the men's sprint. Friday the 5th of January at 1.25 we have the women's sprint. Then on Saturday we have the two pursuit races, the men's at 11.25 and the women's at 1.40. And on Sunday the two relay races, a men's relay on uh, Sunday morning at 10.30 and the women's relay at 1.25. It'll be interesting to see how people respond following the Christmas break or the World Team Challenge. Does extra racing over the Christmas period keep you fresher for New Year? Do you lose a step if you stop racing? Or do you have a chance to regroup, go home, get back into the zone, practice more of what you know? It will differ athlete by athlete and coach by coach, so this weekend is hard to predict. But what isn't this season? Remember you can tune in to watch the racing online at eurovisionsports.tv or on Eurosport. The racing is usually shown live on Eurosport 1 or Eurosport 2 or you can access it live or on demand on the Eurosport player. Some countries in Europe actually have national TV coverage of the biathlon. I think France, uh, Norway and Germany do. 
So you may have to look at your national broadcasters if you are based in those countries. One last thing. When you look at stories about sporting teamwork, you get lots of examples of great success. Manchester United's men's soccer team under Alex Ferguson, the All Blacks rugby teams, the New England Patriots in the NFL. Often these are stories of long-term success, with a culture built up and sustained over several years, or even decades. With all of those examples, we can see the culture coming to an end like the fall of an empire. But it's slow and over time, not through some big catastrophe, but through the gradual ebbing away of what made it so successful, and through the emergence of rival cultures elsewhere. Just as in natural cycles, the death of something creates the raw materials for the growth of something new. What are the things from the old culture that are valuable to the new one? What's the legacy that needs to be brought forward? What are the new things that turn a team from a failed dynasty into a new type of upstart? As I write this, there's a new upstart in British sports who has captured a lot of media attention this past week. His name is Luke Littler, he is 16 years old, and he's made it to the World Darts Championships semi-finals, beating several former world champions along the way. He's our latest phenomenon, and we wish him luck in a sport which seems to place all the emphasis on the individual, lonely on a big stage, competing as much against yourself as against your opponent. Maybe when you're 16 it's all an adventure and you're not afraid of anyone. Maybe when you're 16, your team are your family, and you're playing from a place of safety. In the Johannes Klebo blog that helped inform this episode, he talks about similar themes. Do have a look at the link in the episode transcript. Let's wish Luke the very best of luck as he sets out on his sporting career, and let's give credit to the teams behind the scenes, the people that we never see, who make these sorts of achievements possible. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on Twitter, at skishootrepeat, and on Instagram. Please do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong. Uh, This podcast is built more on love than on knowledge, so I do expect to get fact-checked. Also, let me know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I will be back next week to review the racing in Oberhof and look ahead to Rupolding, which follows in very quick succession. We have racing thick and fast in January before we head to Chechia for the World Championships in February. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.